you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd ask for you to turn it open to Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at the Scripture of our Lord beginning in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the, the pocket in the pew in front of you. And that passage that we're going to be talking about today from Romans chapter 5 can be found on page 886 of that Bible. I have always liked to be clean. One of my parents' fondest memories is when I was four years old. We had a garden that was tilled up in the back of our property, and it had rained a lot the day before, and I was about four years old, and my cousin came up behind me and pushed me face first into it, and I was absolutely covered. The only thing you could really see on me is the white of my eyes when I opened up, and it was by far the worst thing that had ever happened to me up to that point in my life. I was filthy, and I hated every moment of it. I hate being messy. I hate being, being muddy. I hate just being gross. So I work very hard against that. Now, I will be honest with you, during my teenage years, I also had to fight laziness. And so those two things don't always go together. To be clean takes a lot of work. Uh, so there are times in which laziness won out. But as I get older and God has given me a small army of children to be able to help me clean, uh, I found that I, I still want to be clean and I like being clean because of that. I have such a difficult time when I watch parents put a small child in a high chair and plop down spaghetti and meat sauce in front of him and just let him go to town. I, I can't tell you the kind of visceral reaction that I have to that sort of thing. I think it's abhorrent. It's gross. It's just, you know, that, that goes everywhere except in their mouth. It's going to be on their hair. It's going to be on their face. It's going to be on their hands, on their clothes. It's going to be on the ceiling. It's going to be on the floor. It's going to be on the dog. It's everywhere. I just... I dislike it. However, I know that those parents who let their kids do such things are probably better parents than me. It's good for those kids to learn how to get food near their mouth, I guess. It helps to have, it helps to have the, the ability to start to have this sort of fine motor skill and hand-eye coordination, right, so that they can start using spoons earlier. I would rather just spoon-feed them everything until they're about 14 to save the mess, but Apparently, my wife tells me that's not okay. We come now to a passage this morning that hits the jackpot in both difficulty and debate. It's not a passage that is difficult because of the words that are said. The words are fairly straightforward, but because of the conclusions that we might draw from it, and because of that, it is highly debated. When we come to passages like this, and when we have before, uh, as a preacher, we always kind of struggle with how do we, we go through the difficulty. It is much simpler and cleaner for me simply to tell you what I think the passage says and to tell you that this is the right interpretation of it and then to move on. We skip the mess of working through the reasons why it is so and just be fed the fruit of the interpretation. Yet this doesn't allow you to go through the mess itself, to go through the process itself, even if it's somewhat in microcosm. I do agree that that would be much more helpful to you, even if it is messier and chaotic for us. So, in preaching terms, here is a pile of spaghetti on your plate this morning. We go through a very difficult passage in Romans 5, just three short verses that are fraught with difficulty and fraught with contention, but hopefully we can make something out of it because what Paul is saying is difficult, but it is, in the end, very glorious. Let us read these three short verses now. If you will turn to Romans 5, I'll begin reading in verse 12. Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. This is the inerrant, infallible, and perfect word of our God. This passage, if for no other reason than the way Augustine treated it, is very famous. Augustine was, again, a church father from Hippo, and he had a very particular interpretation of this passage, which then made its way throughout the rest of church history. He, more than anyone else, is the reason why we hold to the doctrine of original sin. Now, I need to be clear Augustine didn't come up with that doctrine himself. It was already in the church long before Augustine made it sort of famous. One of the other famous things is he builds the doctrine of original sin in the way he does because of a mistranslation of this passage into the Latin. And so if you were to read it in Greek and you were to read it in the Latin, if you were fluent in both, you would read two completely different things. He was using a mistranslation, which almost everyone who has come after him notes this isn't what it means because he translated, or he didn't translate it, but he was reading from a translation that was wrong. Augustine's primary point in coming to this passage was that we inherit two things from Adam. First, we inherit a fallen nature from Adam, which gives us over to the proclivity of sin. We are sinful. We do sinful things. We are prone to sin. That is the very nature that we have inherited from him, and that is because Adam was prone to the same thing. But secondly, Augustine holds out that we also inherit guilt from Adam, meaning that before we can do anything good or bad, before we have done anything either morally pure or morally wretched, we are already guilty because Adam was guilty. The question before us, however, is not what Augustine says, but rather what Paul says. So let's begin to walk through these verses together. The first thing that I would point out to you is the entrance of sinfulness. Paul marks out the entrance of sinfulness. Sin, according to verse 2, came into the world through one man, through Adam and his disobedience. Adam knew the command of God. God looked at him and said, You may eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden, but the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. And the day you eat of it, you will die. Adam heard those things. God called everything that he had made very good. He had called it perfect. It was excellent in his sight. And yet, Adam went and he took and he ate. There was not failure on the part of God that has led to the disaster of human sin and the disaster of the fallen world that we live in, but rather Paul, like every other biblical author, does not put any blame at the feet of God, but rather the feet of Adam. And it is particularly important, as we've noted before, it will become important later, that even though we know the events of the garden, that the snake came to Eve first and she ate first, before Adam did. The Bible never holds her accountable for the sin of mankind. It is Adam who is held accountable. Adam, who likely should have kept the snake out of the garden in the first place as it was an unclean animal. Adam, who should have protected his wife. Adam, who should have listened to the voice of God rather than the voice of his wife. Adam should have never taken a bite. And so Paul, like every other biblical author, lays fault at the feet of Adam. And once Adam takes and eats, the world is never the same. 
humanity is thrust out of the pleasures of the garden. They are promised death, and they must now live whatever life they are given outside of the presence of God. Paul notice, notes that death comes through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That this idea of sin and death are sort of a two-headed monster that always find one another close to themselves. Where there is sin, there is death, and where there is death, there is sin. Because sin has entered the world, death is the inevitable consequence of that sin. And so, death spreads to everyone. Paul mentions specifically that all sinned. Death spreads everywhere because everyone has sinned. What, what we can find out from this is that, I mean, it seems pretty clear. You sin, you die. This is precisely what God said in the beginning as well. Adam is going to take and eat of the fruit, and God said, if you eat of that, you will surely die. Given what we've read, and not reading any further, we can start to put this together. It seems what Paul is saying is that death has spread to all people. We all die, just like those who lived before us. Everyone who has walked the face of the earth has died. And so too, friend, one day you will die. You will die and death has spread to all men because you have sinned. You and you alone before God hold the responsibility for your sin. You have sinned, you will die. No one is righteous, no, not one, as Paul would say. This means that we have a fallen nature, that we are prone to sin. All sin because of the nature of what Adam has passed on to us. Why is it that all sin? We would find that this is simply an implication of what we have, that Adam has passed this down to us. He's passed down to us this defiled nature. It's not the nature we were supposed to have at the beginning, but it is a a nature that we now have. It's been defiled. It's been defrauded. It's been bent and misshapen in us. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't die. So what does this defiled nature look like? If we were to pause here for just a minute and talk about what, what it is that actually defiles our nature, what can we say about it? We can't say that terribly much, I don't think. I, I know that we could probably write a, a long treatise on it and talk through the ins and the outs of it, but it comes down basically to two two things. First, while we do want to admit that we all have this nature that is not how it's supposed to be, it's twisted up and bent and broken, that in no way, shape, or form has eliminated completely the essence of our image of God which has been put into us. The nature of humanity, what it means to be human, is something that means to be one who carries the image of God in the world. That is what it means to be human. The fall did not eradicate that. The fall did not eliminate that image from us. No matter how much it has bent it, no matter how much it has twisted it, we still carry that. And thus, all humans, no matter how wicked, no matter how insignificant they might seem, in carrying the image of God, deserve to have that very image respected in them. So even if we have a fallen nature, while it hasn't done away with the image of God, our nature is inherently, I think, chaotic and self-defeating. Because we have the very image of God placed on our souls, the fact that we sin means we claw and we stretch and we fight against that very nature. We don't want God to be God. We don't want God to be God means we want to change the image of that which is in us. So we fight against our own nature. We might 
talk about how a house divided cannot stand. Well, a soul fighting against itself cannot live. So we die. Just as our nature is passed down to us from our fathers, so our twisted nature has been passed down to us from our fathers. You are a human because your father was human, and your father before him was human, and therefore you are human. That's how it works. You have that nature passed down to you, but that nature comes to you now twisted and bent and broken. Therefore, while we might think of death as something that's kind of natural in the world, we can get together and we can sing Circle of Life from The Lion King. Seems like it's something that happens to all of us. And it is indeed something that happens to all of us. And by that, we might say that it is natural, but it is not original to God's creation. You see, our sinfulness entered into the world through one man. It is not the fault of God. It is the fault of Adam. It is an interruption of what God seemed to want for us from his good original creation. This, by the way, makes a lot of sense of a good number of biblical passages. Take, for instance, Ezekiel 18.20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. If you sin, you die. What Adam has passed on to us is a sinful nature, which means that we do sin, and therefore we do die. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You are owed death because of your sin. Because of what you have done, this is the penalty that is handed down to you. Now, all of this seems to be a good reading of Scripture, and if we stopped at verse 12, I have no doubt that what we have just said would be good and right and true, and we want to affirm it. But Paul does something odd. He throws a wrench into the works. and Therefore, we need to move on to number two, which is the exclusion of sin. The exclusion of sin. Paul starts out in verse 13 in a pretty straightforward fashion, something we can readily comprehend. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Sin comes before the law. And we say, yeah, well, we, we've read Scripture. We know that that's the case. Moses comes way later. You know, he's not even in Genesis. We don't see Moses until Exodus. We've got a whole book, a long book at that, before we even get to Moses. So, yeah, we know that sin was in the world. We know that Adam didn't have the law of Moses placed before him. So, of course, it's there. But this has important implications into what Paul is actually going to argue what he means by this is you don't need the law to be sinful. And this is an important bit of how we're going to understand this passage. The law doesn't need to be there for sin to be there. That is not the same thing that Paul says about trespasses. So, back in Romans 4.15, Paul has said, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, to transgress or to trans to, to uh, have, have sin that actually goes against a commandment of God is a transgression. It's a trespass. It means exactly the same thing that trespassing does to us today. That there is a boundary that you shouldn't cross, that you know you shouldn't cross, that you have crossed. Without a law, you don't have a clear boundary that you can cross. Okay? So there can't be a trespass, there can't be transgression without law. There needs to be a clear, definitive, you shall do this or you shall not do that in order to actually have a transgression. 
Sin does not work like that. Okay? So he says very clearly, sin was in the world before the law was in the world. What we would say about this is that all transgressions, all trespassing is sin, but not all sin is transgression. So to give you an, uh, an example, probably from my own life, talk about rooting for a team in sports, right? So if you, we've got football coming up, we're not going to talk about the NFL that happens on Sunday and that kind of messes things up. But let's talk about college football because you're college football fans because you're right and true and God-honoring. So you, you follow this particular team. You give, you give yourself over to listening to information about your team on, on talk radio. You read up online about them. You want to know what happens and why. You're analyzing the things that happen. You find that your mood rises and falls depending on how your team is performing. Your fandom takes time and money, focus, and energy away from things that we must admit are probably of greater importance because God tells us that they are of greater importance, your family and your devotion to him, etc., etc., etc. If this gets too taken away, if you get too caught up in these kinds of things, it's fairly easy to say that that's a sin. You are placing too much of yourself in something that isn't God. And that is encroaching on God's glory. It's encroaching on, on God's central nature and central part of your life. But we would look long and hard, and we would come up empty trying to find a passage that specifically tells us, you shall not root for sports teams, or that tells us precisely where that line is that we cross over. It's not like stealing. Stealing's right there. Does it belong to you? No, stealing, right? That is a trespass. What Paul is saying is not that this isn't sin. It's sin, but it's not a trespass. It's, it's simply a difference in definition. These kinds of things encroach on God's glory, and that is by nature a sin. Romans 3.23 again says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That whatever you're doing this with, it can even be a good thing. It can be your family. It can be the church. There are a number of good things that you can replace God with that are near God, that God even tells you to love, but that in your heart take a higher place than they ought to. That is sin. If they encroach on the glory of God, it's a sin. So sin exists outside of the law, and that is very important because in verse 13, he goes on to say this, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And that word, counted, has a very special place in the argument that Paul has made up to this point. He has used it continually in reference to one man, quoting it from Scripture in Genesis 15, talking about how God looked at Abraham and looked at Abraham's faith, and he counted it to him as righteousness. If we were to kind of try and figure out what that word count works as today, if we were to use a kind of separate metaphor for it, we might want to talk about it being something of you know, evidence in court trials today. That God, in his holy court, sees what Abraham does. He sees the faith of Abraham, and he says, now that is evidence that shows, and it's all the evidence I need to declare you righteous. That is, that is a clear sign, a clear symbol of your righteousness. I count that as righteousness. That is evidence of your righteousness. There's other kinds of evidence that we can have. There's evidence not just that you're righteous, but there could clearly and obviously be evidence that you're guilty. What Paul says here, in a manner of speaking, is there's a, there's a slight technicality 
that God follows because he's God and he wants to follow it. That technicality is this, that when there is no law written down, God particularly will not allow evidence of your sinfulness. Though there is sin, he will not count it against you because he has not told you not to do that thing. That is precisely, I think, what Paul is arguing here. I would like to say something in passing about the nature of the metaphors that's being said here, just to make sure that we're all being clear. There will be passing, and we always do pass, in the reading of Scripture, just like we do in our normal conversations, in between this metaphor of our sin and guilt as a sort of courtroom metaphor of righteousness and an economic metaphor of wages. You see Paul sort of transferring this back and forth. But we do this all the time, okay? So don't let that throw you off. The two are implying the same thing. We say all the time, he must pay for his crimes, right? He owes a debt to society, So those two things are saying the same thing. If you owe a debt to God, that debt is indeed the penalty that you must pay for what you've done. So the point here is, where there is no law, God throws out the evidence of our sin. It cannot factor into his verdict. This leads to an inference which I believe to be a good one. And here is where our problems truly begin. If death is the verdict, and death seems to be the verdict the question becomes, on what evidence is that verdict given over? If we die, Paul says death spread to everyone, but then he says, even though there's sin there, God's not holding them accountable. There seems to be a verdict based on evidence, but he's excluding, like, all the evidence. He's saying, I know you've sinned, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to let that enter into my courtroom. The question becomes, Where is the evidence then? Why does death reign from Adam to Moses? There is the exclusion of sin. But that means, thirdly, there is an inheritance of guilt. Where did all sin? All sinned in Adam. Paul mentions that death reigns from Adam to Moses. It's a clear depiction of God's verdict again. And the clearest description of that verdict comes actually in a genealogy in Genesis 5. I've mentioned it before. I love that genealogy. There are genealogies all over Scripture for a number of different things. Some of them are really small. You get this beautiful little genealogy at the end of Ruth. You've got longer genealogies for multiple and various things. You've got many of them going throughout Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. You've got these sort of family histories, but none of them, save Genesis 5, does what Genesis 5 does. And that is mentioned to us every single time he died. We automatically assume he died. We go to the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke and we read of the genealogy of Jesus. We don't think, huh, it never says Abraham died. I wonder if he died. We're like, yeah, he's dead. There's 14 generations here. Most of them are dead. We, We understand that they died. But Genesis goes out of its way. It goes out of its way to say, he lived this long, boom, dead. He lived this long, boom, dead, each and every time, to show beyond the shadow of a doubt that death was still reigning over these people. They might have lived an incredibly long time, but death came knocking anyway. So, we might ask, again, what is that verdict based on? They died, they died, they died, they died. If God wasn't allowing their sin To lead him to that verdict, what led him to that verdict? What allowed death to reign in them? Listen to how Paul then speaks in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose 
sinning, which is not admitted, that's not evidence, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That is, they sinned, but they didn't go against what God had commanded. God was going to spare them from judging their sin, but what he will not do is pass over the transgression of Adam. If there is guilt, it is Adam's. And it appears very clearly, to me at least, that that guilt is then passed on to everyone else because everyone else dies. Otherwise, Paul has very little reason to go into all of this detail about this kind of argument. He could just say, people sinned and they died. We know they sinned and we know they died. He wants to set this out as very particular and important. God refuses for your good to not condemn you for your sin outside of giving you a law, but instead holds you guilty for Adam's sin. You have inherited his guilt. It is yours. You don't have to like it. You don't have to love it. But it's yours all the same. You read through Genesis 1 through 11, you'll find God is continually speaking in the first chapter. He is continually speaking in the second chapter. The fall happens, and God becomes quiet, and he doesn't give another command. Now, once we get to Abraham, he's given some sort of commands. He's telling him, you've got to circumcise your kids. There are other commands that he gives along the way. But there aren't any commands that are just given to the entirety of the world. And what Paul is doing is he's looking at all of these people who died. Everyone in the world dies. But God doesn't give them a command. Where do they die from? What is the purpose of their dying? They die in Adam because they carry Adam's death. So, it seems like Augustine was right, like a good theologian, for all of the wrong reasons. He ended up somehow, I think, getting the passage dead on, even though he did it by using a faulty translation and basing his argument off of that faulty translation. This is, though, not explicitly stated here. It's an inference. We're theologizing from the passage. We're trying to make sense of what Scripture says. The question then becomes, do we have other examples of stuff like this happening in Scripture where people are held guilty for someone else's wrongdoing? After all, we have that passage in Ezekiel where it says that that doesn't happen. A son's going to be responsible for his own sin, a father for his own sin. Truth of the matter is, we absolutely do. It's written all over Scripture. Not only is Paul's point here, I think, that, but even if we go back and we think through what happens in the garden, it becomes clear that everyone who comes from Adam and Eve are kind of implicitly held guilty. What was the punishment for their sin? God did what? He kicked them out of the garden. He made them work in the outside world, and he closed off the garden to them. Where were their children born? They weren't born in the presence of God. They weren't born in the presence of life. They were born where the dead and the guilty go. They were born outside of Eden. They were born inheriting the guilt of their fathers. We can look at the kings of the Old Testament. We are told continually that the nation has gone astray, but what we're actually shown is not the whole nation going astray sometimes, but the nation going astray because the king goes astray. The people carry the guilt of their king. When the king does well, people flourish. When the king does wrong, people die. David commits a sin. God says, I've got some punishments for you. You pick one of them. Those punishments almost all carried out over the people of Israel. 
The kings mess up. God punishes the people of Israel. Was it their sin? No, but they are held responsible for it in some way. Even those who are put into the exile, even those who are faithful are cast into the exile. Jeremiah is a good example. Another great example is Daniel, who, though carried into the exile when he is a young man, still has this absolutely powerful confession of his own sin, coming from the fact that he is one who is in exile. He says, this is our sin. He feels as though he is guilty. Daniel is one of the rare people in the Old Testament that is held up at almost every turn as being holy and wise and good. And yet he knows that he carries guilt because he comes from a guilty people. Famous passage in Isaiah basically says the same. I am a a man of sinful speech because I come from a sinful people. I mean, even this past spring, when we studied through that small book of Esther, we talked about the Amalekites. Before the people of Israel even got to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites attacked them. God was fed up with them and said to them, I'm going to destroy you off of the face of the earth. When did God do that? He did not do it that instant. He took his people to Mount Sinai. He then took them up to the brink of the land. They rejected it. For 40 years, they went around the wilderness. He then brought them into the land, had to conquer all of that land. Then he took them through the time of the judges. Then he gave them Saul. And only then did he say, go and kill the Amalekites. The people who were then living had no hand in doing what the Amalekites did to Israel coming out of the Red Sea. But they were still held guilty for it. This is not, this is not some sort of one-off, odd interpretation by Paul, but it is an extension of what Paul sees all over Scripture. The wages of sin is death, and the wages that your figureheads have gained for you are passed down to you. This is corporate guilt. You are guilty because you belong to a group. You are guilty because you belong to Adam. And the crazy thing is, that's really good news for you. That's really good news for you. We can come then to the fourth point, which is the insanity of rejection. The insanity of rejection. Many hear this and they just are like, I I can't fathom that God would hold me accountable for someone else's sin. That seems wholly unfair and wholly unjust. Ezekiel was right. We ought to pay what we owe for what we've done, not for someone else's. I'll give you four brief answers to that sort of objection about the justice of this point. First, you can object all you want to, but frankly, folks, that objection doesn't apply to you, and it doesn't apply to the vast majority of the living world today. Because almost everyone has heard that there is a God in Israel and that that God has come down, he has sent Moses down a mountain with tablets of stone that have ten commandments on them. And you have heard those commandments. Just because you can't list all those commandments and you forget the one about, you know, covetousness. And you covet. You can't say, oh, well, I did hear it at one time, but I forgot about it. No, God says, that's even worse. You're neglecting my law. Like, this doesn't apply to you. You're not one who is outside of the giving of the law. You know that God has commands. He has given them to you. The vast majority of the world, Muslims, have their faith based directly out of this. Now, they they don't get along with Jewish people, but they do believe that they have come from Father Abraham and follow the law. They they believe that there is law. They, They know that the Jews believe that there is a God who has given the law. 
So this doesn't apply to you. Second, God says that this is the way, so this is the way. If what we have said in our interpretation is right, then the fact that it's found in God's word means that it's good, right, and true, regardless of what you think or any objections that you might have about fairness. It's always odd to me that people can hear God and see like, well, God is being unfair. I understand saying things like, that's not God because God would do things fairly. But they actually charge God with being unjust if he acts this way. He's God, right? He is the nature of justice. There is no like standard of justice outside of God. What God does is just because he is God. Listen, if you and I are at loggerheads over this part of God's justice, if we fight with God over this, and you think that it's unjust, in the very center of your soul, you read this and you say, man, that feels wrong. That feels unjust. Who are you going to trust? The sinful human whose knowledge is pitifully small and whose ethical priorities are bent towards sin? Or the almighty, thrice holy, omnibeneficent, just God who has created all things by the power of his voice? That is the easiest question you will be asked today. You side with God because he is the just one. You are not. Thirdly, it's not just that it doesn't apply to you. It's not just because God says this is true. But Paul is being really clear about this. He's not saying they're not guilty. He goes out of his way to say they're sinful. There was sin in the world before the law. He's not saying that like, well, these people were pure and innocent. They were, they were holy, holy people. It just so happened that they came from Adam and God was really upset with that, so he struck them dead. No, he's, he says very clearly, all sinned. They might have sinned in Adam, but they certainly sinned. Sin was in the world before the law was given. There is this idea of our fallen nature. That Paul agrees these people are guilty. They are sinful. It's not that they were innocent. It doesn't mean that they were innocent in every other way. This is, objection is so weird to me. Once you realize that they're actually sinful, and in God, in mercy, is simply saying, but when I didn't tell you, I'm not going to hold that against you. This is like having a man who is found standing over another man, having shot him and stabbed him to death. Having his lawyer work super hard to get both murder weapons thrown out. But even in her brilliance, even in looking through all the technical material, she can only have the gun thrown out. The trial goes on. He is found guilty. People say, no, we, we know you stabbed him, man. We've got all the evidence. We know that you were guilty of that. It's like the man at the end of that standing up and say, you guys didn't even consider the fact that I had a gun. Right? It doesn't help your case, dude. Shut up. The fact that you get frustrated by the fact that you're being held accountable for Adam's sin doesn't mean that you're not guilty. It just means that you would have been more guilty had God not been merciful to you. It's a mercy of God. And it's a mercy of God because by the very same mechanism, by the very same accountability, by the very same corporate nature, you can be saved in Christ. The objection means, I think, frankly, that you lose Jesus. Here's the deal. Paul 
ends this passage by saying this. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now, when he says that, he can't mean he's a type in any old way that Paul wants him to be a type. He clearly means he's a type in that the things that happened to Adam and the people who came after Adam is just like what happens in Jesus and those who come after Jesus. In this case, it's exactly like it, only it's completely the opposite. What happened with Adam will happen in some sense oppositely in Christ. The point is simply this, friend, if you want some sense of rugged individualism, if you want your sins to be held against you and you alone and no one else's, if you want your own merit to be applied to you, you want your own work to count for you, and you cry out that it is unjust, it is is completely unjust for God to hold anyone else's merit, anyone else's work, anyone else's sin against me, God's going to be like, hey, chill out. You can have your rugged individualism. You can cherish it. You can keep it every day. It can be your little beloved thing. You can enjoy its fruits every single day in hell because there is no salvation for you. There is one man, one, who will stand before God in his own merit, by his own work, in his own life, carrying righteousness with him. That man is Jesus Christ. Everyone else who stands before God will stand before God only in his righteousness, in his merit, in his work, and in his life. If you don't want Adam's guilt applied to you, you don't get Christ's gift applied to you. Again, see the mercy of God in this. The way God has set this up provides for you not only mercy of your past sins, if done outside, not yours maybe, but at least those who lived from Adam to Moses. He is merciful to them. But in saying that, he also opens up the way for you to be counted righteous. There's corporate guilt and there's corporate righteousness. You are righteous because Christ is righteous. You are holy because Christ is holy. You are saved because Christ was resurrected from the dead. It's not anything to do with you. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you have done. Just like Adam's guilt being applied to you has nothing to do with anything that you have done. Christ is the true and the better Adam. While we were guilty and sinful because of Adam and we were set aside for death, those who trust in Christ are righteous and holy, set aside for God. Jesus came to save hellbound man. He came to give life to those who are dead. And the same Jesus calls us to that today. He is the one who comes to save the guilty and the condemned, the lost and the broken, the sinner and the evil one. He seeks them out so that he might show the power of his love in giving them life through his death. This is the gospel. You were dead in Adam, but you are alive in Christ. You are guilty in Adam, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what we hang on to. It's okay to be corporately guilty. It is okay to know that our guilt is incurred to us because of what Adam has done, because only by that can we trust in Christ and live. Let us pray. Father, Give us great hope in Jesus. We are all.
condemned before you. There is no help for us in our own flesh. We are sinful through and through and have no way of making ourselves right with you. But praise be to God. You sent your son to die for us that we might live in him. So we come to you now to sing of your praises and of the glories of your gospel. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our voices. Let them ring true so that the powers and the principalities of the world, the people of the world, might be reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our great God and Father. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.